This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Parkinson's disease is one of the most common neurodegenerative diseases. The number of individuals with Parkinson's is greater than those with multiple sclerosis, ALS, and muscular dystrophy combined. It tends to affect older patients, although on rare occasion, it can be seen in those under the age of 50. It also tends to be more common in men than in women. Parkinson's can have a devastating effect on an individual's lifestyle as the physical symptoms of the disease in general tend to progress over years. Our topic for today's podcast is Parkinson's disease. Dr. Jeremy Cutsforth Gregory is a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic, and I am so pleased to have him back with us today. Jeremy, welcome back. Thanks so much. Good, good to see you again, Daryl. Well, tell us what's happening in the brain, both pathologically and physiologically in patients with Parkinson's disease. Sure. So Parkinson's is one of the typical neurodegenerative diseases where a protein accumulates, uh, builds up in cells, and is neurotoxic or is part of the neurotoxic process. And unfortunately, those neurons or cells die over time. And in Parkinson's, I think most people are familiar with the most targeted cell is the dopaminergic cell, the ones that make dopamine. That's why there are so many motor features. Now, as we've learned over time, it's not just dopamine. Parkinson's is more than just tremor, more than just a gait disorder. I'm sure we'll get into some of those topics later today. But the bottom line is it's a slow process of a protein buildup, killing off cells, and leading to a number of symptoms. So that toxic protein, you know, I know in Alzheimer's disease, it's uh, amyloid. And do we know what it is in Parkinson's? We do. It's a protein called alpha-synuclein. And it's, it's a protein that actually appears in a couple of other diseases too. I know they aren't the topic of today's talk, but I'm sure people will have heard of dementia with Lewy bodies. It's often alpha-synucleinopathy, multiple system atrophy, and a rare disorder called pure autonomic failure. So there's a collection of synucleinopathies, but Parkinson's is by far the most common. All right. Is there a genetic component to Parkinson's? Yeah, about 15% of Parkinson's disease is recognized to be from an identifiable gene. They have fun names like LARC2 and PARC7 and PINK and PARKIN. Some of them are autosomal dominant. Some of them are autosomal recessive. There are even a couple of genes that are known to modify the risk of getting Parkinson's disease, even though they don't seem to cause the pathology itself. All those different genes together I account for about 15% of Parkinson's. All right. And how about environmental exposure? Are there any uh, toxins out there that we might be exposed to? Uh, when I see a patient, I think about three, I ask specifically about three potential exposures. So in patients of the right age, Agent Orange was shown to increase the risk of Parkinson's disease. So folks who fought in wars where there was Agent Orange exposure. More common, especially in this area, would be pesticide or organophosphate exposure. So folks who worked in the farm fields uh, back when they would just spray overhead regardless of who was below. And then there was a street drug in the 90s called MPTP. It was an adulterated mimic of Demerol. And that uh, is actually still used as an experimental model of Parkinson's disease in animals because it creates uh, quickly a pretty similar uh, change in the brain. All right. You mentioned Lewy body disease. Um, as a geriatrician, I've seen significant number of patients with Lewy body dementia. There's a striking similarity between patients with Lewy body disease and Parkinson's. Are they the same disease? Or are they actually separate with similarities? Or where does that fit in? 
can the answer be yes and no at the same time? I mean, they, they are so similar. So mm -hmm. they're both alpha-synuclein diseases. Lewy bodies are the pathologic hallmark of both. Um, I think broadly speaking, you can think of Parkinson's disease as being initially a motor disorder with the Lewy bodies starting in the brainstem and then over time spreading up through the brain. Whereas dementia with Lewy bodies, those Lewy bodies probably start more diffusely, particularly throughout the cortex, and so cause a cognitive impairment early. There's something called the one-year rule that separates these two diseases, and it seems very simple, but it actually works pretty well in a research and a prognostic sense, and that's that if someone has motor symptoms of Parkinsonism for at least a year before any cognitive symptoms, that's going to be called Parkinson's disease, kind of no matter what happens in the future. Whereas if within the first year they have cognitive symptoms first or motor, but with cognition uh, impaired within the first year, we're going to call that dementia with Lewy bodies. Mm -hmm. And it makes a difference because Parkinson's disease doesn't shorten the lifespan by much, maybe a year or two on average. Whereas dementia with Lewy bodies is more of a 10 year on average start to finish, certainly with variability, but it really, um, it starts a stopwatch of people's decline. And again, even though they look very similar clinically, the patients with Lewy body disease have been some of the most challenging to take care of because they often have significant behavior issues mm -hmm. to deal with, which Parkinson patients usually don't have. Absolutely, that's true. Let's talk about Parkinson's now clinically. How does it typically present? What are the early symptoms of Parkinson's? Uh, the most common presenting symptom is tremor, and it's a resting tremor. Now, that's not the first sign, and in fact, a resting tremor alone isn't enough to diagnose Parkinson's disease, but the rigidity and the bradykinesia that also define Parkinson's, patients might say they feel slow or stiff, but it's usually the tremor that appears that brings them to the uh, doctor's attention. Yeah, and we see that often. I, I can't count the number of patients I've had who've come into the office with a tremor and they've appreciated it. Others have noticed it and they're really afraid they have Parkinson's disease, but it usually turns out to be an essential tremor. So what are the differences between a tremor with Parkinson's versus an essential tremor? I'm glad you brought that up because that actually is a key distinction and a huge weight that we can often take off patients' minds. Essential tremor is actually the only movement disorder more common than Parkinson's disease. In the adult population, about 4% of people will have essential tremor, whereas it's about one and a half or 2% with Parkinson's disease. Uh, the difference is when the tremor occurs. So Parkinson's is a resting tremor. It's when the hands are sitting in the lap, not doing other things, particularly if the mind is engaged in something else. You know, so you might hear about someone who's watching the baseball game, really into it, and that's when their hand is shaking in their lap or, or at church, I hear about it a lot um, from the spouse I make him sit on his hand or he has to put it in his pocket because otherwise he's flapping the hymnal around. Whereas essential tremor is action tremor. It's not present at rest. It's when the patient's trying to do something. So if I hear uh, my handwriting is deteriorated or I have a trouble pouring water into the cup, you know, I spill it or I have trouble eating, that's an action tremor. And I'm already thinking this is likely to be essential tremor, not Parkinson's. What's the typical progression in patients with Parkinson's? Tremor often comes first. What do we see after that? It's a little hard to predict exactly what's going to happen in order, but overall, it's going to be slow. And I think there's going to be a combination of motor symptoms and non-motor symptoms. And so Tremor brought them to the doctor's office. But when you ask about something like constipation, they'll often say they've had that for five or 10 or sometimes even 15 years. And that is also a manifestation of Parkinson's. I'm not saying that that's always the cause of constipation. I don't want to alarm people to think that you know, they're constipated and that they must have Parkinson's. But it's a common preclinical sign. Loss of smell would be one that's a bit more specific. 
and then one that people don't often connect, but uh, when I talk about it, it's when I ask about it, it's important, and that's REM sleep behavior disorder. Basically, when patients act out their dreams because they can hurt themselves by falling out of bed or hurt their bed partner, and those things, all those things could happen before, concurrent with, or after the tremor onset. What patients are going to notice beyond that then is probably gait decline. So they get slower, stooped posture, imbalance. Parkinson's patients don't fall in the first few years, though, and that's a red flag if they're falling that early after symptom onset, or maybe one of the atypical Parkinsonisms. But uh, I tell people, we're going to watch your gait, we're going to watch your tremor, uh, and we'll be able to help. I'm sure we'll talk about uh, treatments here before long, because we can help a lot of those things. All right. I've had some patients, usually with rather significant Parkinson's, more advanced disease, who develop dementia. Is that related to the Parkinson's or is it just because they're older and they've got cognitive impairment, maybe from Alzheimer's disease or other cognitive impairment diseases? Uh, they can definitely have co-pathology. So Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I tell people, you know, a little bit of memory loss can certainly be go along with age, but we also all know people who are 90 or 95 and perfectly sharp. And so I, I don't like to blame age alone. Parkinson's can cause dementia. So those Lewy bodies can spread and get into the cortical neurons and, and impair cognition. And it's about, it's probably at least 20%, and depending on the study, maybe as many as 50% of patients after you know 10 or 15 or 20 years of Parkinson's will likely have some cognitive impairment. Okay. What are some of the other complications of advanced Parkinson's and how long do patients typically live with Parkinson's? So they can live with it for 20 years or, or more, again, because it probably doesn't shorten lifespan by about a year or two. Average age of onset is around 70. You know, so you think those patients are going to be living with it for 10 to 20 years, probably based on kind of typical lifespan. But some patients have Parkinson's onset as early as in their 30s or in their 20s. I know Michael J. Fox is just celebrating his 60th birthday, for example, and he was diagnosed with Parkinson's in his 20s. And so he's lived with it for, for well over 30 years. In the late stages, we talked about the dementia a little bit. I mentioned some of the non-motor symptoms. One thing that hasn't uh, that I forgot to mention was autonomic impairment. So patients can get orthostatic hypotension over time with Parkinson's. And so that's something to monitor for because patients are both at risk of increased syncope and falling and injuries, but also there's cognitive impairment from the hypotension that they might not recognize could be treated with something to raise blood pressure. Okay. Let's talk about treatment now. I remember years ago when uh, we were taught about Parkinson's disease, we were instructed you should hold off on treatment until the symptoms are bad enough to really cause a significant impairment in the patient's life. I haven't heard that recommendation lately. Is, is that no longer valid? I'm glad you haven't heard it because that uh, was a myth hard to kill, I think. The reasonings were often, leave it open only works for a certain amount of time. So you got to save it for later. That's mm -hmm. not true. Or um, there's a lot of side effects and toxicity from the drug. Well, there's no toxicity from leave it open. There are side effects, but side effects also are complications of the disease. So now the teaching tends to be, if the patient is limited in their activities because of symptoms of Parkinson's, then it's worth treating. So it's not quite saying, as soon as you see the hint of a rest tremor, you need to treat. If it's not bothering anyone, you don't have to treat. But you don't have to wait for some sort of significant major impairment either. Because the drug will work, and it turns out patients will need it more often later in the course of the disease, but it doesn't matter if they've been on the drug for a year or 10 years. It's the duration of the illness, not the duration of the treatment that determines those side effects. Okay, good. Well, let's talk more about treatment. I know there's several products out there. 
Tell us about the pharmacologic treatments that are available and what should be started first? I like to keep it simple. And actually, carbidopa levodopa, the oldest drug on the market for Parkinson's, it's been around more than 50 years, is still the most effective. And uh, it's because it is the one that is metabolized to dopamine, the missing or deficient neurotransmitter. Other pharmacologic options include dopamine agonists that work on one instead of five of the different types of dopamine receptors. So it can be helpful, but not quite as effective. There are then also drugs that basically try to slow the metabolism of levodopa. So COMT inhibitors like entacapone or MAOB inhibitors like selegiline or risagiline that just try to keep around the levodopa. But the mainstay of treatment is levodopa. And it comes almost always in a combination with carbidopa so that the levodopa is not metabolized in the periphery. And it gives you a lot of nausea and vomiting if you get dopamine in the gut. Levodopa can cross the blood-brain barrier. Carbidopa cannot. And so levodopa gets to where it needs to go, is metabolized to the chemical you need, and then the carbidopa uh, prevents the nausea. I tend to like generic med names, but uh, Cinemet is a clever one because uh, with levodopa alone, you get a lot of emesis, and with carbidopa, you don't. And sin is the Latin prefix for without. So you're without emesis with Cinemet. Yeah. The pharmacologic treatments you mentioned They've been around a long time. They don't really alter the course of the illness. Is there anything available which is actually considered a disease-modifying therapy? There are no drugs yet or electrical therapies or surgeries that modify Parkinson's disease that slow its progression, but exercise does. So good old-fashioned aerobic exercise done at least a half an hour on the majority of days per week is enough to slow the progression. And there are a number of studies that have shown that and they've shown it in observed physical therapy, uh, patients exercising on their own, cycling, boxing, Tai Chi. Turns out it doesn't seem to matter what you do. As long as you get the heart rate going enough, at least four days a week, at least half an hour. So those are the kind of the minimum floors. Patients will do better. And I tell people, how do you know if you're going hard enough? Well, if your heart rate's up there above 100 to break into a sweat or to get a little breathless, that's probably good enough. And is there evidence that exercise may prevent the onset of Parkinson's too? There is. So midlife exercise has been shown to reduce the likelihood of developing Parkinson's later. It's about as close as we've gotten for prevention is that midlife exercise. Okay. But another reason for getting off the couch. Absolutely. Well, the drugs you've mentioned, and they've been around for many years. Is there anything new out there? There's a few new things. Um, some of them are repurposing or repackaging or reformulating levodopa, knowing that it's the most effective. You know, one of the complications that is that as patients lose the natural ability to form dopamine, they become more reliant on the blood concentration of levodopa, of the exogenous source of the dopamine. And so they take their pills, as, as you probably had to help patients, instead of three times a day, now four times a day, now every four hours and every three hours and on and on. And so there are longer acting forms of levodopa, um, capsule on the market called Ritari is a kind of combination of short acting and long acting levodopa. It adds about an hour to someone's uh, duration effect. So that can help. There's Duopa, which is a gel of levodopa. It goes in through a feeding tube. So we actually will occasionally put in a permanent feeding tube in patients so that the levodopa can go straight to the small bowel where it's absorbed in a slow, continuous pump rather than these boluses of pills. There are also some surgeries. So you've heard of deep brain stimulation. That's actually been around for 25 years or more now too, still shown to be quite effective. And then a newer surgery called focused ultrasound. I almost think of it like focusing the beams of a light through a magnifying glass. 
a thousand or more ultrasound beams are focused on a target deep in the brain to do essentially what deep brain stimulation does, but in a single incisionless surgery. That's the pros, you know, no cutting, one-time surgery. The cons are you can only do one side. So if a patient has symptoms of Parkinson's on both sides of the body, you're only going to treat half of them and you can't adjust it. So you do the surgery once and, and kind of hope you hit the target and do well. And it can be successful and it's um, you know, probably appropriate for certain patients, but DBS also gives you more flexibility later to, to make adjustments. Okay. None of those surgeries um, modify the disease either. They're all symptom control. They can be quite effective for symptom control, but I think it's important to keep that in mind for patients. Anything on the horizon that you think sounds promising? There are some immunotherapies that are looking to target the alpha-synuclein protein that we started the conversation with to maybe clean it up sponge it out of the brain or to prevent its accumulation if the process has started. I think those could be exciting. And you know, in neurology, like in many other areas of medicine, immunotherapies or um, immune-mediated disease are becoming more and more recognized. And the fact that there might be an immune component to Parkinson's is exciting. There's also some therapies early in trials uh, looking at improving mitochondrial function to keep the energy source of those brain cells uh, going stronger. I think those are the things um, probably nearest on the horizon. Okay. Well, Jeremy, let's summarize our discussion by asking you to give maybe two or three points that summarize uh, what we've talked about regarding Parkinson's. Uh, I'd like people to hear that most of the symptoms of Parkinson's are treatable, as long as we ask our patients about both the motor and the non-motor effects they're having. Um, that regular aerobic exercise is the only thing we have to slow the progression and can make a real difference. So get off the couch. And then I haven't said it earlier, but I think, you know, if we keep it simple with levodopa and recognize this as a slowly progressive disease, primary care physicians and advanced practice providers can have a major role in managing, perhaps even completely managing their patients with Parkinson's for at least the first several years. Neurologists are always available and happy to help, but don't feel like you have to consult us necessarily right away. Well, we've been discussing Parkinson's disease with Dr. Jeremy Cutsforth Gregory, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. Jeremy, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. As usual, you've made a complicated subject sound so uh, easy to understand, and we'd love to have you back again to talk about some other neurologic topics. Well, thanks so much. It's been fun. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.